It's the Geo Show. 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 Hello and welcome to another episode of The Geo Show. I am, of course, your host and master of ceremonies, GOP, and with me we have a very special guest. He is the former coordinator of the Animation Bachelor at Sheridan College. He is also the creator of the YTV television series Monster by Mistake, which ran for three seasons and a total of 52 episodes, and I guess is a veteran for Canadian animation and cgi animation in canada uh, i'm speaking of course to the wonderful mark mayerson mark how are you doing i'm fine thanks how are you i'm doing all right so let's start into this let's go to the beginning how did you get started with uh, animation uh, i grew up in new york city um which was a major media market and at a time when lots of places in north america only had a couple of tv stations um, new york city had seven the non-network stations needed programming, and so what they did was they bought lots of old stuff from Hollywood, including lots of old animation. Um, and so growing up, I got a crash course in um, animation history because animation from just about every studio was on New York TV, so I naturally got interested in it. Well, while I was in college, a friend of mine um, had done some animation completely on his own as a hobby, so I tried some as well. And after graduating, he got a job at a New York studio doing a TV special to celebrate the American Bicentennial. Um, and he suggested I apply, and I got in, and I've been working in animation or teaching animation ever since. So how, how did that first animation job go for you? It was um, a very low-budget project, and pretty much everybody on the crew was right out of school. Um, and so it's pretty embarrassing to look at today. Um, but it uh, was my first animation credit, and from there um, I was able to keep getting jobs in the business, although while I worked as an animator on that project, uh, for a while I had to drop down to being an in-betweener um, before I could go back to finding animation work. You're, you're accredited to a lot of CGI animation, so computer-generated animation. How did you specifically get into uh, that genre? Um, I came to Toronto in 1980, and 1984, things were really slow um, in the Toronto animation market. And so I went to Sheridan College and took a summer-long course in computer animation, which at the time was extremely crude. Um, and starting in January of 85, I was hired at Omnibus Computer Graphics, um, a very early computer animation company. Most of the work there was for what we referred to as flying logos, um, network IDs or brand IDs with the occasional TV commercial. Um, but as I say, things were extremely crude at the time. So from there, how did you find yourself getting into, I guess, uh, animation in uh, film and TV? Well, after Omnibus, I went to work for a company called Arca, 
and they were producing animation for the TV series Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. Um, and that was the first television series to include computer animated characters. There were two um, robot characters uh, that were in that show um, as villains. Uh, the show was created for and sponsored by Mattel Toys. Uh, it was a very early version of interactivity. There was a chunk, um, an area on the chests of both of these robot characters um, that flickered at 30 frames a second, and Mattel made toys where if you aimed your toy gun at the TV and managed to hit the area on the chest of the characters, you would know that you had scored a hit. So consider it an extremely early version of a video game, I guess. And um, how long did, was Captain Power a long running show? Was it something that, uh, was it uh, was it successful for the company or was it? Uh... It went way over budget. We were supposed to do 26 episodes and we stopped at 22 because we ran out of money. Um, and the show ended on a cliffhanger and then um, they decided not to renew the show so uh, my heart goes out to anybody who was a fan of the show waiting to find out how things were going to uh, to resolve themselves because they never did resolve themselves um, story editor on the series was J. Michael Straczynski who later went on to do Babylon 5 um, so he was in charge, but as I say, he left the series after season one, not knowing it wasn't going to be renewed, and then it wasn't renewed. Well, that's too bad with the with the cliffhanger and all. Uh, was there ever a plan? Was there ever a plan to kind of save the show? Was there uh, to get like more investors on board, or was it just completely canned after those twenty two episodes? I was never involved with the business aspects of it, so all I know is that uh, they tried to get a renewal and couldn't do it, and that was the end of Captain Power. Oh, that's too bad. And what uh, what what did you go on to do after Captain Power ended? Um, I went to work for a company called Side Effects Productions, um, again, doing logos, doing commercials. I did some effects work on the second season of the War of the Worlds TV series that was being produced then. So this is uh, somewhere around 1989. Um, and after that, I went back to draw and animation for a bit. Uh, I worked for Michael Sporn, somebody who I knew from New York. Worked on a lot of half-hour TV specials that were run on um, PBS and HBO. Um, and when that was over, I thought that computer animation had progressed far enough that it might be possible to do a half-hour TV special. So I went to Kim Davidson, who I knew from Omnibus Computer Graphics and Side Effects Productions, and I asked if um, Kim, Kim was a software guy. And he and his partner, Greg Hermanovic, had um, formed Side Effects Software. They had bought the rights to um, the software that Omnibus had been using, and which I was familiar with. Um, and I suggested to him that if he could lend me software and a machine, that I would create um, a sample piece to attempt to sell a half-hour TV special. 
uh, Kim decided that it was something he was interested in, and so um, he formed Catapult Productions and hired me. Um, and the first thing we tried to do was um, a sample for a half-hour special called The Land Without Books. So we created something that was somewhere around two to three minutes long, and we took it into the marketplace and discovered at the time the only kind of TV special, animated TV special, um, that broadcasters would be interested in would be built around either Halloween or Christmas. So we were out of luck on that front. A few years later, after, I, after that sort of failed, um, Kim put me to work with a software company doing training and um, support. And a few, a few years after that, Kim decided that he was willing to finance a complete half-hour special on his own. And so um, knowing what we did then about holiday specials, um, we created Monster by Mistake um, and did it as a half hour, knowing full well that if it was successful, we might be able to turn it into a series. So um, while we were in progress on it, Kim took a trailer for it um, to a TV market, and we um, ended up partnering with a company that was called Cambium at the time. He sold it to ITV as a Halloween special, which I believe aired in... 1995, although I might be wrong on the year, it was either 95 or 96. I think it's 96. Okay. Uh, and then from there, Cambium took it into the marketplace and it took more than a year to put together financing um, for more episodes. So at that point, um, we hired a larger crew um, and um, began turning out Monster by Mistake episodes for YTV. And it had also been sold to several Disney channels um, in the um, in Europe. So that was our first go around. Interesting. Now, something I'm curious about for the for the previous, uh, uh, I guess, pilot or I guess test that you worked on for the Land Without Books, uh, was that a finished script? Did you like have that done and then there's a short clip of it on YouTube? Uh, but was that a finished script or did you or was it just like a portion done and then was sent to the network? It was a complete script, um, which we used as part of the pitch. But we only produced a small portion from the script because at the time, again, we're talking about 1992, 1993, um, an awful lot of people had no idea what computer animation looked like. Uh, and so we felt it was necessary to do something so that they could see what the show would look like. And uh, going back to what you said about uh, Monster by Mistake and getting that, uh, you've talked in the past in uh, some speeches that you've did at uh, Sheridan and about about how it was uh, difficult getting the show on the air because YTV was uh, was very picky about it and about what they wanted in the show. Uh, what was it like dealing with... Uh, um, the broadcasters there and the executive at YTV and how they were trying to, I guess, change the show? Um, it was very frustrating. Um, 
they found that the show was too dark and they weren't talking about brightness. They were talking about the tone of the show. Um, I obviously disagreed with that. Um, a few years later, Harry Potter came along and sort of proved them wrong. Exactly. Um, but um, the thing about broadcasters, especially when it comes to children's television, is their greatest fear is that they're going to offend parents or have advertisers complain to them. Um, and so they have a tendency to try to water down everything they do um, to prevent any complaints. And so it took a long time and a lot of discussion for them to take a chance on Monster by Mistake. Um, and I guess they were very concerned about lightening it up enough uh, so that it wouldn't attract any negative comments. Was this something that progressed like this kind of lightening it up? Was this while it was even still being sold as like a Halloween special? Or was this even when it was trying to be sold as kind of the, um, the actual series itself? Um, the Halloween special um, was pretty much left alone. So the pilot is the show we wanted to make. Um, it was the period between the pilot, the Halloween special, and the order for more episodes. Part of that wait was due to financing, finding enough broadcasters who were interested. Um, but also, again, the more broadcasters you have on board, the more masters you have to satisfy. Um, and so it took time to get everybody happy enough to go forward with the series. What was some of the, and I'm not sure if you would even remember this, but for YTV, what was some of the things that they were kind of saying were too dark? Um, they were concerned. I remember very distinctly that the person in charge of children's television or YTV said, being a monster can't be like having a disease. Being a monster has to be fun. Um, my attitude towards the show was that turning into a monster on an involuntary basis um, was a metaphor for any kind of a problem a child might have, whether it was physical or social or familial or whatever. Um, for me, the point of the show was even though you've got this problem that you can't fix, you still have to find ways to go forward in your life. Um, YTV felt that uh, that was not the way to go. Um, also, I definitely wanted to have a police officer in the series who would be trying to track down the monster. They felt that was too scary for children. Um, and so the police officer ended up being the main character's aunt. So there was at least a familial connection there, which they felt would um, make the police less scary to the audience. Yeah, and the the character in question, I think it's uh, the, the character's name is Aunt Dolores. It's much more of like a comedic relief character. It's not like the opposite of threatening to them. Like it's kind of like this, uh, I guess, stereotype of a cop. So that's that's very interesting for the, for the show when it actually went in uh, for the uh, I guess for the uh, its original uh, run with the first season. Uh, what was the original response to it? Like, how was reception with the show? Was it like a big warm reception? or was it like mostly negative or it, it seemed to do well initially the first order was for 12 episodes in addition to the pilot um, and before it began to air as a series it got renewed for an additional 13 episodes um, so certainly the broadcasters were happy with it um, we 
on the crew were extremely happy because it was a very early computer animated show made entirely in Toronto. Um, so we were all very proud of it and hoping it was going to be the beginning of ongoing success. Um, after the 26 episodes, it was not immediately renewed for further episodes. Again, there was a period of longer than a year. I can't remember. I think it might have been 14 months um, until financing was put together for another 26 episodes. So we lost probably 90% of the original crew because we couldn't keep them employed for 14 months with no income. And they went on to work for other studios, mostly in the Toronto area. Um, and then once the financing for the next 26 was in place, um, we were able to rehire some of the original crew, but not many, and um, had to hire obviously a new crew in order to complete the order. What was it? What was it like? Uh, how 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 exciting was it? Was finding out that the show, even after the first one aired, that it was going to be renewed for another twenty six, well, for another thirteen episodes, and then twenty six episodes, because that's hitting fifty two episodes, which is like the magic syndication number. What was that like? Well, I, the the renewal for the initial for the for the thirteen was great because it meant for the crew their employment would be extended. Um, it was also great because we felt that we had something that was working for the audience at that point, or at least we hoped it was going to be working for the audience. Because as I said, um, that renewal came before any of the episodes got on air. Um, it was a disappointment um, when the show wasn't immediately renewed. We had tried selling other things. Um, there were lots of other projects that I had taken into the marketplace without success, unfortunately. Um, and so when we wrapped up episode 26, we basically had to shut the studio down um, and lay off the crew and then just wait. Um, and Cambium did not give up. They continued to take it into the marketplace and try to find money for the next 26. Uh, but as I say, it took more than a year before they got the financing in place. I know that there's a bit of a story behind the... Uh the uh, third, I guess the third season, the uh, I guess second batch of 26 episodes, there was a uh, with there's a bit of trouble, I guess, with with one of the companies that backed it financially. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, IDT is a telecom company in the United States, and they had a subsidiary called uh, Digital Production Solutions or DPS. And they were willing to put money into continuing the series in exchange for um, doing all the modeling on the show and doing the lighting for the show. So we would take care of the pre-production, meaning the scripts, the voice tracks, the storyboards. They would do the modeling, we would do the animation, they would do the lighting, we would do the post-production. Um, the way co-productions work is that if somebody's putting in X amount of dollars, they have to get X amount of the production to match the dollars they're putting in. So um, the initial problem was that we were working with Houdini Software, which was made by Kim Davidson's company, SideFX Software. And DPS um, was using 3D Studio Max. We offered to train them in Houdini Software, and they refused. And so we had to spend time and money creating a conversion program to convert Houdini into 3D Studio Max and convert 3D Studio Max back into Houdini. 
Um, so that was a bit of a monkey wrench. Um, the models we got from them were not, frankly, were not very good. Um, and I spent a lot of time fixing them, especially um, the models for the characters. And then um, they completely decided they were not going to handle the lighting at all. And so um, we had to hire a company in Singapore and send a supervisor over in order to get the show lit. And as a result of that delay, um, instead of the new episode starting in September, they didn't start until the following January. Um, which in the television business is a cardinal sin. If you, you know, if, if a broadcaster is expecting a show to show up and it doesn't, um, that's a major problem. So um, there were definite um, production problems in producing that last 26 episodes. We finished them, we got them on the air. Um, but as you say, once they hit 52 episodes, YTV was... Um, satisfied with the number that they had and they were willing to run it Monday to Friday um, as a rerun and that was pretty much the end of Monster by Mistake. Was there ever a chance to try to get it uh, beyond those 52 episodes? Um, I don't think so. I think at that point um, because of the issues with DPS um, the show was uh, running in the red um, because of all the production hiccups that DPS had caused, um, the show had lost money. And I think at that point, um, Cambium had decided that it was just time to move on and find other projects. Oh, that's too bad. And uh, something interesting to bring up, you mentioned um, they provided that their own models for certain characters. Halfway through the, um, I guess, the third seasons, the characters completely change. Um, yeah. What was what was it like seeing these? Did you try to fight them? Did you try to keep the original look for the characters? Um, I fought them and lost. Um, one of their conditions for investing in the show was that they would get to redo the main characters. Um, I argued that if the show had any hope of getting merchandised at any point, it was going to be, first of all, I argued that it was going to be extremely confusing to the audience once the show went into reruns because the characters were going to obviously be changing on a day-by-day -day basis if they didn't run the shows in order. Um, I also said that um, if we were ever going to be lucky enough to get any merchandising for the series, which designs were they going to go with? Um, and what happens if the merchandise that was bought by children didn't match the look of the show that they were watching on TV? So I thought those were pretty good arguments, um, but uh, the money argument won, and that was that you know without agreeing to their requirement, they weren't going to invest in the show, and the show wouldn't go forward. Um, as I said, the models that they gave us were extremely poor, um, and I spent a lot of nights and weekends fixing them. Um, and I'm not talking about well, while I was fixing them in terms of appearance, somewhat. I was more fixing them in terms of their workability for the animators. In computer animation, the quality of the rigs is extremely important. Um, if, if the rigs can't hit certain body positions or certain facial expressions, the animators are extremely limited. And so I spent an awful lot of time working on the characters' faces 
so that the animators would have a complete range of expressions available to them. Um, it was a lot of work, and I did the best I could, um, but I still feel that uh, the show suffered for the, the change in the appearance of the characters. Oh, definitely. Because I, I actually remember this. Well, I have it on me. One of one of the DVDs, funny, funnily enough, um, on the front cover, um, it has one of the original, it has the original versions of the characters. But then you flip it to the back and it has a screenshot of one of the episodes. And it's like one of the newer models. So, yeah, definitely something that they didn't take into account. But uh, that's that's sad to hear. Was there a specific reason why they wanted to change the characters? Was this just them kind of just wanting to add their own kind of spice into the show and kind of want to make it their own? Or was there like a motive behind it? Well, IDT was um, very vocal about the fact that they thought they were going to be the next Pixar. They actually said it in various print interviews. Um, in addition to that, they were on a buying spree. Um, they bought Mainframe in Vancouver. They bought Dan Kretsch Productions in Toronto. Um, they bought into the Archie Comics Group. Um, so they were looking to build an animation and a media empire, but um, they frankly didn't know what they were doing. And in just a few years, they bailed because it was obvious to them that they were not making any progress, they were not making any money, that animation was something that they didn't know anything about. Um, and so they ended up selling all their assets. I have no idea if they still own any chunk of Archie, but they so certainly sold the two animation studios that they owned. Um, so in changing the, the characters' faces, I, I just assumed that it was part of their master plan to become animation powerhouses. Looking at back at a retrospect of Monster by Mistake of the 52 episodes, was there any episode that you particularly liked, like had a favorite or one that you felt worked really well? Or did you have any episodes that you just thought were just not very good or ones if you had the chance you'd go back and kind of, I guess, fix either story-wise or, or um, script-wise or like even look of the show? Um. There was an episode that I wrote uh, called Warren's Nightmare. Sorry, I actually had to look up the title because originally it was called Monster on Purpose. Um, it was um, a dream sequence, essentially, where Warren reveals to the world that he is the monster and what the repercussions for that are. Mom! Dad! I'm so glad I found you! W what are you doing? The bank was robbed. So we have no money. We couldn't pay the mortgage, so now we have to leave the house. It's all your fault for telling you were the monster. But... Tom, it's the taxi. What happened to our car? We had to sell it. Pack your stuff and meet us at Aunt Dolores's. We'll be staying there. Um, unfortunately, it was the first episode um, I directed with a new crew for the second 26. Um, so the animation in it is not as strong as it might have been if it had been animated later in the series. Um, but from a writing standpoint, that was certainly um, an episode that uh, I was proud of. 
And was there any other episodes that, like, you felt stood out to you? Like, one of my favorites particularly has to be one from season two. I believe it's either episode 12 or 13. It's called Moving Day. And it's almost this build-up throughout the whole entire series of the villain, uh, Gorgul, who's stuck in this uh, glass ball. And he's finally released from it. And kind of, he, he releases his wrath on the characters. And it almost... Uh, caps off his story until he's 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 uh, brought back later in the show but one of one of the biggest climaxes in my opinion and one of just like overall I think one of some of the best in my opinion some of the best dialogue and stuff and just overall a chilling storyline but let us out you had your chance with the jewel now it's my turn do you have any idea how much power you held in your hand how many have fought to possess this? Empires have fallen. Empires will fall again. Are you going to leave us like this? Hmm. I've been merciful. But how will we escape the bulldozers? You're on your own now. You, you... What? Little creep? Pygmy porcupine? <laughs> you see, I never forget an insult. Then remembering must be a full-time job. Very droll. Thank you. That's another episode that I wrote and directed. Um, at that point, we didn't know if we were going to be renewed or not. And so while I wasn't willing to um, cure Warren of turning into a monster, I wanted to have some sort of um, finality so that if the series didn't get renewed, at least people would feel that uh, they weren't left hanging. And so that was the purpose of that episode. Interesting. And something I wanted to go off of now, uh, was there ever a chance uh, with, with kind of with the 52 episode uh, with syndication, you don't kind of want to, you don't want to, you kind of want to leave it with an open ending so people want to keep watching the show. Was there ever a thought in like those last 52 episodes or even in something prior, would you ever have cured Warren in any capacity in the show? Would there ever been... Um, a cure to the, this kind of symptom of turning into a monster when you sneezed, or is that something that was completely off the table, would never happen in the show? Um, I don't think we considered it. We certainly were hoping that we were going to continue to make episodes past 52. Um, so it would not have been something that came up because it would have been an end to the series for sure. Um, and I don't recall it ever being discussed so um, whether we knew it was going to go into syndication or we were hoping for more episodes, we just figured we would leave that as the central part of the series and not touch it. Given the chance, the uh, show's currently in the, in the copyright of uh, Nine Story Media Group. And uh, given the chance to ever, like, if Nine Story would be compliant, would and maybe it'd be picked up by, I mean, another animation company, but given the chance, would you ever uh, go back uh, for possibly a reboot of the show or possibly, or something like that, a soft reboot, or given the cre given having the free creative reign that you wanted without having any, uh, any uh, reins on it by uh, corporate uh, people or people up 
or higher ups in a company, given full creative freedom, would you ever want to return to the show or return to the storyline and kind of do uh, your version of it, like kind of a darker, um, more intense monster by mistake? Well, one of the things I learned with the 52 episodes is that uh, there is no such thing as creative freedom on television. Um, you are constantly trying to please producers and broadcasters and um, the nature of Canadian TV at that point in time was that you not only had a Canadian broadcaster, but you had several international broadcasters as well in order to complete your financing. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's highly doubtful uh, that there ever would be a situation where um, somebody would want to revive a series and provide me or anyone else with complete creative freedom. Um, having said that, also, you know, uh, the show ended somewhere around 15, 16 years ago. Um, and I've gone on with other things in the meantime. So uh, I don't know that uh, I could put myself back in that headspace, to be honest. What, uh, after you were done with uh, Monster by Mistake, what did you move on to do? Well, I was looking around for other opportunities and didn't find any, frankly, that looked appealing to me. Um, a friend of mine was working at Sheridan College and wanted to know if I was willing to teach part-time. And I figured, well, what the heck, I've got nothing else on the go right now. I might as well, you know, do something for some income and a new experience. Um, they were, um, Sheridan was undergoing a transition at that point from a three-year um, diploma program to a four-year degree program. And they were in the market for people as uh, for faculty that had master's degrees. The uh, province of Ontario requires that if you are a full-time instructor teaching someone in a degree program that you have one degree higher than the degree that the program is granting. So if the program is granting a bachelor degree, um, the province required that full-time instructors have a master's degree. Uh, because I had gone to school in New York, I had a bachelor's degree, whereas 30 years of Sheridan grads in the animation program did not. Um, and so um, while I was teaching there, I poked around and uh, applied to a master's program at York University and got accepted. And they were so desperate for full-time faculty at that point that even though I hadn't completed the master's yet, the fact that I was in the program was enough for them to offer me full-time employment. Um, so I took it and eventually completed the master's and uh, was at Sheridan for about 15 years. Oh, wow. And uh, how was it? what was it like teaching at Sheridan? Um, like any large organization, uh, it was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think the curriculum there was extremely strong. Um, and I think the success of Sheridan graduates sort of proves that. Um, certainly the, the grads from the program have gone on to work at studios in multiple countries, working on features, TV series, video games. So I, I think the success of the students speaks well to the um, quality of the program. Um, however, Sheridan was the, was the largest bureaucracy I ever worked for. Um, it was very frustrating that if you wanted to change anything, you had to go through several levels of bureaucracy to get an approval. Um, 
In addition to that, if, if any changes were going to be made to the program, they were made for the following September for year one. So even though you had an immediate need for a change in the program, um, students who were already in the program would never have the benefit of the change. It would only be students coming into the program fresh in the following September who would be able to take advantage of that change. So that level of bureaucracy was extremely frustrating. Overall, compared to what, what, what you've done with those uh, places, what would you consider was, was your favorite? Do you prefer working on the shows or do you kind of prefer working with students on developing their own ideas for shows? I think that um, under the best circumstances, production was better. Um, I worked for Michael Sporn for a couple of years. It was probably the best professional experience I ever had in that I understood what Michael was shooting for, um, and he left me alone to provide it as an animator. Um, and so that was um, gratifying. He didn't have very big budgets, so that was a bit of frustration, but the creative freedom I had working for Michael made up for that. Um, so that was quite pleasant. Um, other times in production, it was extremely frustrating um, in that even when you were working on TV commercials, there would be people in ad agencies who would sometime ask for changes that would actually um, make their sales point worse. And you'd shake your head and wonder, how did you get into advertising if you don't understand that you're actually shooting yourself in the foot here? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were a great many frustrations on the production side. Um, again, the good thing about Sheridan was I was left alone in the classroom. Um, and so, you know, I was able to um, develop lectures that I thought were nice and clear about what was necessary for animation. Um, and I had the opportunity to, you know, work one-on-one with students. I was teaching second year for the most part. I did spend some time with fourth-year students. So in the year that I was teaching, um, it was mainly about physics in the fall, weight, momentum, things like that, so that movement would seem real because it was being affected by gravity and by body mechanics. And then in the winter semester, it was all about lip sync and acting. And so um, I sort of had the transition from students working with flower sacks, excuse me, flower sacks, fairly crude things in animation and raising them to the point where they will animate walking, talking characters. What was it like almost seeing that kind of the progression of, uh, of uh, the students' work at Sheridan? What, what, what's that like, kind of seeing someone coming in, like kind of like struggling, and then afterwards seeing like kind of them producing finished pieces and stuff? Um, it was very gratifying. I have to say there was a certain percentage of students there who were fantastic and frankly didn't need instruction. It was always humbling to see some of the talented people in the classroom. It was mainly people in the middle, so to speak, um, that benefited the most from instruction because they were the ones who needed a stronger grasp on the principles and needed more guidance getting to the end point. Um, But I do have to say there were many, many students at Sheridan who were incredibly talented just walking in the door. Um, And there you just sort of nudge them a little bit to the left or the right but really, you know, they they were great on their own. 
my last question or one of my my last ones are is that currently uh, you've you've retired from the position of the of the animation coordinator. Uh, what have you been getting up to uh, nowadays? Um, well, until the pandemic hit, I was sculpting on a regular basis. Um, I'm, I'm a member of a sculpting studio, the Al Green Sculpture Studio in Toronto, which is a great place. Um, and I started sculpting when I was teaching because I needed a creative outlet. Animation takes too long if you've got a full-time job teaching to produce anything with, and sculpting seemed to be a nice alternative. Um, once the pandemic hit, the studio closed, understandably. So I have hopes that uh, it will reopen at some point and I can get back to sculpting. Um, and I've been working on a graphic novel called Trip to the Stars. The script to that was one of the things that I was hoping to sell while I was attached to Catapult Productions while Monster by Mistake was still a going concern. Um, and in the interim years, that was the thing that stuck in my head the most uh, of all the things that I had pitched and so I decided I was going to do it as a graphic novel. So it's on my website, MayersonCreative.com. Um, and I'm getting close to finished. I'm hoping by the end of September, uh, it'll be complete. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, will, will it be an online distribution or are you going to try to get the piece uh, published as a physical uh, comic or a novel that you can buy? Um, I go back and forth on that. I'm a little gun shy based on the interference I had on Monster by Mistake. Um, and I, I decided I was going to complete it without any kind of input from anybody, no matter what, um, on my website, so that I didn't have to deal with agents or publishers making decisions that were going to affect the work. Um, once it's complete, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'll approach people or if I'll just decide that uh, I'm happy doing the work without having to deal with anybody else. And I'll just continue to uh, do various projects. Going off of that, um, before we cap this off, uh, what would you, what advice as you as the creator of, uh, of many properties and having worked on Monster by Mistake and having, uh, trying to produce your own content, what, what advice would you give to people or younger people out there who are trying to create their own kind of franchises, create their own characters, and trying to get their idea out there to the world? What, what would you say to them? What I would say is that if you approach a broadcaster, or these days if you approach a streaming service like Disney or Netflix or Amazon or Apple or whoever, um, they're going to take ownership of your work. It's a given. They're not going to invest millions of their dollars into anything um, unless they can own it. And once they own it, um, you are, I hate to say it, at their mercy. Um, they can fire you. They can change the work in ways you disagree with. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, money is a higher priority to them um, than a creator's creation. Uh, and so if you are just looking for the opportunity to get something made, if you are throwing out ideas and you don't feel particularly attached to any of them, then I don't think there's anything wrong with approaching various broadcasters or streaming services and trying to get a sale. Um, however, 
if you are someone who has a strong emotional attachment to your creation, if you are someone who resents other people making changes to your work, you will probably not be happy if someone agrees to produce it, uh, in which case my advice is to find a medium where you can produce it on your own, you know, whether you write it as a novel or create a graphic novel or a webcomic or however you feel you could create something completely on your own and own it and get it to an audience online. The truth is that the larger your audience, the more leverage you have in any negotiation with someone who wants to bring it to a larger audience. If you go to um, someone with an idea, the value in the marketplace of your idea is a complete unknown, whereas the money they're investing in it is a complete known to them. Um, and so you have no leverage. However, if you put it in a form where you can copyright it and maintain ownership of it and generate some income from it, which is not easy, but can be done with, you know, Patreon or Kickstarter or Topatico or some other online service. Um, as I say, the greater the income you're able to get from a property or the larger the audience you're able to create for your property, um, first of all, if you're really lucky, you have no need for anyone else to invest in it. But if you have investors who come around wanting to use it, you have leverage to um, set conditions to protect your property. So that's pretty much the nature of, of the way the business operates these days. So thank you for, I just want to say thank you for overall this insightful interview. That was very some, I guess, some words of advice creators can take. I definitely will take. I'll take that. And uh, I just want to say uh, before we go, thank you, Mark, for uh, joining the show today. Um, where can, uh, if the listeners want to find you, do you have? Uh, I know you have the website Marison Creative. Do you have any other outlets we can find you at? No, that's pretty much anything I do these days is going to end up on that website. So MayersonCreative.com. Um, I can be emailed there, and if you're interested in looking at Trip to the Stars with uh, somewhere around 30 pages to go, um, or any of my sculpture work or any other comics work I've done in the past, it's there for the for the looking. Awesome, and I'll, I've uh, I've taken a look at some of the pieces on the site. They look quite fantastic, so can't wait to can't wait to see what you sculpt in the future. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, giving me this opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Geo Show. If you want to catch more episodes, you can check us out on Spotify. Simply search The Geo Show and we'll have episodes up on there. You can also find us on YouTube. Our channel is GeoTV1, all one word. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I am under Twitter under Petty underscore Geo, P-E-T-T-I underscore Geo. And you can also find the show on Facebook. Just simply search The Geo Show and it will come up. Give the page a like. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again to Mark Mayerson for joining the show. And another episode will be coming next week. Stay tuned. The Geo Show. Geo Show. The Geo Show. The Geo Show. The Geo show.